Repent, says Jesus in today's Gospel. Repent. And this word comes from the Latin repentire, and it means to regret, to be sorry for. It means to look at the past, to look at the way that we've walked, and to regret it, and to say, I wish I had not walked that way, and then to turn and go on a different path. And in our readings today, both in the Gospel and in the first reading about the prophet Jonah, we have this call to repentance. But for Jesus in the Gospel, he proclaims this this general repentance, and then immediately afterwards, what does he do? He calls four specific individuals to, to come and follow him. So it seems like in a way this call to repentance is individual. He's asking these four specific people to change their lives, to do something different. Which is the total opposite of Jonah. With Jonah, there's not a specific character that he's calling to repentance. God sends him just to the great city of Nineveh and he proclaims repentance to the, to the whole city, to the whole people. And this points to the, the reality of sin as both personal and also, in a sense, communal or structural, we might, we might say. So personal sin is you know, the, the personal choice that we make with our free will against uh, the law of God. But we can also talk about a communal sin or, or a structural sin when we have a, a society or, or some kind of organized unit that has a, an atmosphere, a culture, uh, laws or rules that promote sin. And so if, our, if we sin when we individually choose against loving God with our whole heart or loving our neighbor as ourselves, a structural sin is when there's an organization in some way or things are organized in order to discourage people from doing that, from fulfilling their, their personal call. This week, I think, is an interesting week to talk about repentance because we've had two significant secular sort of memorials. The first is uh, the uh, celebration of Martin Luther King Day on, on Monday. And really we celebrate him because it's a remembrance of the struggle for civil rights, equality uh, under the law uh, for all races in, in the United States. And ultimately that lack of equality was rooted in you know, sort of the personal sin of racism, but it manifested itself legally. And then, a couple days later, we had the 48th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, which um, legalized uh, abortion in the United States and um, sort of withdrew the protection of the law from the unborn. And I think, in a way, these are both sort of things that we are called to, uh, to repent from, you know, whether racism or abortion, you know, and there are lots of other sins in society that we're called to repent. But in terms of what that means, what, is, what does that repentance mean? I, I think the first thing that we have to be clear about is, well, what are we... What are we called to repent towards? If we're supposed to regret the past, we're supposed to regret sin, what are we going towards? 
And the answer is God. God who is goodness itself in one united, unconflicted whole. That's the great statement of faith for the Jewish people in in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. In a world where people worship lots of different gods, the Jews proclaim that God is one. That all goodness is ultimately united together. And and that's it actually has, I think, a practical reality to it because when you're talking about the good things that God has created, it means that they themselves should have, their goodness must have a certain unity to it. So when we talk about personal morality, what we're really talking about is how a human being, body and soul, every part of them, is working harmoniously together to love God above all things and neighbor as oneself. That's what it means to be personally a moral, good person. You think of the Blessed Mother, this total giving. But it's also true of, of society, that all of society, you know, when it has real social justice, is organized to helping and encouraging and promoting this love of God and neighbor. And it also means something about evil. That evil is, in a sense, a thing that causes disharmony. And so evil is not siloed. You know, and I think oftentimes you look at the way debates play out about um, cultural hot topics, you know, abortion, racism, whatever. And so oftentimes there's this siloing of evil, that this problem is just this problem, and this problem is just this problem. But there's no sense that, you know, evil throws everything off. But if goodness is about a harmony and about a working together, it's clear that if one thing is off, it's going to throw everything else off. If you have one trumpeter in an orchestra playing the wrong notes on the wrong beat, everyone will notice and everything will sound bad. So goodness is this, this harmony of things. And so I think it's, it's you know, worth in looking at cultural issues, I think, to always assume that our gaze needs to be broadened, that we don't actually see all the connections between various kinds of evil. But we should kind of intuit that they're, that they're there. And so I think, you know, if we look at the issue of, of racism and abortion, it's kind of a good example of what does this mean? You know, how do we see connections where they're so rarely discussed, I think, culturally? First of all, just as an intuition, why might these two things be connected? Well, if you don't recognize the equality before God of people of every race, well, then I think it would be really easy to also not recognize the humanity of people at various stages of development, especially if they're hidden in the womb. Could go in the other direction. If you don't, if you don't value the life of a child in the womb, if you don't appreciate its dignity and its goodness, well, how is it all of a sudden that once children are born, you're going to value them equally no matter what color they are? Okay. Well, that's a, just a theory. But then we might ask, well, do we see any, anything in our society that would promote the idea that 
these issues are somehow connected. Well, the, the truth is that there is a big connection. African Americans constitute 13% of the American population and about 39% of abortions. It's a huge, should be a huge red flag. Why is that happening? And just to give you what that means concretely in certain places like New York City, in New York City, if you uh, are an African-American child and you're conceived, you have a better chance of your life ending through abortion than through being birthed alive. That's how bad the, the statistics are. And so why might we see connection between these things? I think there's a Again, this, this tendency in, in discussing in any hot-button uh, topics, especially, you know, racism over this past year, to sort of pick a pet explanation and, and to, to run with it. Um, you know, oftentimes when talking about, let's say, incarceration rates, you know, amongst African Americans, you know, one uh, frequent argument on the right is, well, it's all about family. It's all about family structure. You don't have a father around, things go bad, you know, and it's been breakdown of the African-American family, and, and that's, that's the cause. And the other side, well, no, it's structural racism, targeting, profiling, you know, and, and that's the cause. But again, when we look at things, might there be a way that these two things come together? And I, I think for abortion and racism, we can find a key if we look in the past. Planned Parenthood is, is currently the largest provider of abortions in the United States, and it was founded by a woman named Margaret Sanger. And uh, simply put, I, I think Margaret Sanger was a huge racist, um, like really big. Uh, she, she ran a magazine in the 1930s called the Birth Control Review. And in 1933, she ran an article by Ernst Rudin, who was a friend and advisor of hers, uh, entitled Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need. So eugenics refers to sort of cleaning up the gene pool by selective breeding, sterilization, yada, yada, yada. Well, Ernst Rudin uh, is most well known for serving as uh, Hitler's director of genetic sterilization. A couple months later in the same magazine, she published an article by Leon Whitney called Selective Sterilization, adamantly praising and defending the Third Reich's sterilization program. And Margaret Sanger herself called for the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threatened the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. And to that end, she founded what she called the Negro Project in 1939. And the explicit aim, it was actually founded before then, it was her and a number of other white women. Um, in 1939, it went public and, and there were some African-Americans brought on board. And the specific purpose was to go to the South and to really promote birth control to African-Americans in the South, especially through churches and ministers. And that was the explicit focus. And this had a um, huge impact on and uh, African-American family. There's one researcher who uh, looked at the census data from 1890 to 1940, and he found that 
During that time, black children and white children in the United States had about the same chance of growing up with both their parents, up till 1940. And, and now, the rate is about 75, 70, 75% of African Americans don't grow up with, uh, in wedlock with their parents uh, married. And the, the answer to this puzzle really, uh, sort of tying all, all this together, was a paper published 25 years ago by Janet Yellen and uh, another economist. Janet Yellen, chair, chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, uh, I think under Barack Obama. I think she's just been renominated by President Biden. Um, and this paper published 25 years ago argued against the idea that the welfare state was promoted family breakdown. They said, no, if you look at the data, it's really birth control and abortion. And they were kind of embarrassed by this. You know, they said, we like both of these things. We're not arguing against both of these things, but this is just where the data took us. And I think it's really important because it explains in a way, why is it that we've had, you know, this sort of breakdown in society, especially in the African-American community. And a lot of it goes back to personal racism, which became systematic racism. This viewing of this group of people as not worthy and needing to be eliminated from society. And this, this had a devastating uh, impact. So why talk about all of this? I think one, because we, we live in a contentious time where there are lots of sort of pressing and hot topics, you know, moral hot topics that are debated in society. But as Christians, I think we need to approach this from, from a Christian point of view, which means that there's a unity to goodness, that all of these things tied together. And yet, and also, that evil is not siloed, that evil always spreads and causes disharmony throughout a system. You know, that it doesn't just stay in its own little category, it affects everything. And so when you look at this issue, you see the interplay of racism and you know, sexual morality and abortion and how all of these things sort of play together in this dynamic way and how that affects so many issues in our society. And as Christians, if we believe that, that goodness is really united as one in God, that is also the mentality we have to bring to society and to the reform of society and to building up the kingdom of God. It also means that, that people that we are going to disagree with almost certainly have something true that they're saying. They almost certainly have something true that they're saying. And it's so important to find that. And that's one of the great things that that St. Thomas Aquinas did. You know, he, he knew his opponents' arguments better than they did. And he always sought to find the truth in them because he knew there was something there. Pull out the truth and then you can discard the rest. And I think that's going to be a crucial kind of skill and not just skill but an approach because ultimately a Christian heart is one that wants to be totally devoted to God and wants to know the truth wants to know the truth. That's probably the most important step in learning the truth. But that the truth is all one. That's why we have universities. That's why under one roof, you know, people study biology and history and English and chemistry and philosophy and theology. It's a Christian idea. 
everything ties together. And when we, we have in our minds the idea, the knowledge of how things tie together, the real hope is what? That we can love with our hearts as we should. With a whole and undivided heart. I'll leave you with a final thought from Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Once we take our eyes away from ourselves, from our interests, from our own rights, privileges, ambitions, then they will become clear to see Jesus around us.